0: let's let's turn to the Lord and go to him in prayer once more father we pray to you this morning we pray to you the living God we come before you with hearts filled with thanksgiving We enter your gates even with thanksgiving, your courts with praise, and how much we have to be thankful for, how good you have been to us. Even in the midst of COVID, you have been incredibly good to us. (laughs) How kind you are, how merciful you are, how good you are. You have worked and how you are working ever still. And we praise you, Lord. We thank you for how you've been working in us. We praise you for how you have been sanctifying us and growing us, conforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you how you have been growing us. We thank you for Haven. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for brothers and sisters in the Lord that we do not walk alone, but we have those who are indeed closer than blood family. Those who are in Christ and we thank you for our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your son Jesus Christ that he is our hope. He is our life. He is our joy. Even in the midst of sorrow. Even in the midst of trials. Even in the midst of challenges of heart and soul. Things that seem to threaten to undo us. But He, in him, he is a hope. And he is our hope. And that a hope that will never fail or falter. We thank you. Lord, how many ways and reasons we have to be thankful. As we look forward to celebrating Thanksgiving this week even, we have many reasons to be thankful. So help us, help our hearts to arise, help our hands to rise, help our feet, our knees to bow. Help us to praise you and adore you as we ought to do. So help us, Lord, we pray. We pray right now that you would be with us, Lord, as we come as those who are unworthy. And yet you mercifully have given your word and you have given your son as a demonstration of your love. And so we come this morning as those who are thankful and we come and pray that you would be with us and illuminate your word this morning. Help us to see it. Help us to receive it. Help those who may perhaps even now be blind to it. May you open their eyes that they may see it in all its wonder and see your Son in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we pray. So help us, Lord, we pray, and we look to you in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We'll be walking through verses 35-41 through this morning. This morning we have a rather short passage, but these verses, they come as a culmination of really all that we have been seeing over these last few weeks. So here, or the last few weeks, if you've been here, we've been walking through chapter 9. And so here... We come to the pivotal point of the entirety of this story, the story of the man, if you weren't here, the man born blind, and his having been healed by Jesus. And then from there on, we went into the dialogue between him and the Pharisees as well, and even this man's parents. So as we ponder and kind of take in everything from this chapter, Think about how incredible this would have been for this man. So he had very you know likely resigned himself that he would you know basically be blind for the rest of his life perhaps you know this is what life would look like you know he would continue on day after day not being able to see a life where he would continue going about begging and continue being Blind, You know, and I'm sure maybe at times he perhaps pondered, you know, maybe even pined for sight. He had never had it before. Perhaps, you know, he had pined for it, but, you know, he'd been blind from birth. And so it was really unthinkable that anything but blindness would lie ahead for him. So there really wasn't a hope that he would have anything more than this. So it really was an impossible an unimaginable idea that one day he might actually see. Yet, one day, there he would be as he would have normally done. You know, they're begging people hour after hour, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, for alms. And there, here comes this man who does... What no one else could do. He heals this man born blind. Amen. Unexpected, never happened before. And now this man sees when he never saw before a world that he had never seen before for the first time. Imagine it for yourself. Explodes before his eyes. And what wonders. It would have been to see all these things, colors and sight and trees and everything else. All this comes to him. And so wonder upon wonders indeed. So what So what then would you have thought? What would you have thought of that man that just healed you? probably a lot of good things <laughs> you know wow who is this guy i mean who can do that a lot of things i'm sure he'd be thinking well the fact of all this certainly has been plain in what we have seen so far in chapter nine and even more so here as we turn to our passage this morning so let's let's read it here beginning in verse 19. Or verse uh, 35, sorry. May God work in our hearts this morning at the hearing of his, his infallible word. Amen. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Amen. Now we just imagined something of what it would be like for this man who was born blind to have seen. Well, here imagine on with me that you are this man you know he had just been healed you know news that really should have been a catalyst for rejoicing as I'm, i would imagine many people were rejoicing all around him like what in the world this man we've seen you know day after day he now sees praise god a natural response to this but what had been a catalyst for rejoicing has now turned to this. There's no telling what the man, you know, is feeling right at this moment. You know, he now, he sees, and, you know, however long it's been since he's seen, and he's been interrogated by the Pharisees and all these things. And and so one of the first things as he uses his eyes forward when he actually sees is he encounters these Men with his newfound sight, who have these terribly angry expressions on their face at him—you know—they're reviling him. So one of the first things he's seeing is men, men, and people angry with him, and then they cast him out. What? What in the world? You know? I mean, this incredible thing just happened to me, and I'm being cast out of the synagogue. I mean, what in the world is up with this? interesting enough the now seen beggar may well see physically but he has yet to see spiritually so we haven't we haven't seen him actually come to faith yet in this passage he hasn't yet been given spiritual sight which brings us then to what has been really kind of interwoven throughout this chapter into our first point this morning here and the first point is this god's pursuit of the blind god's pursuit of the blind and so throughout this chapter we see kind of glimmers of the spirit's workings and we're really meant to see that and i'll tell you why in a minute but Here's kind of the glimmers that we see in chapter 9. The man, he is slowly beginning to see who Jesus is. So we see that in chapter 9, verse 17. You can just look over there. He says basically that Jesus must be at least a prophet for for him to be able to do something like this. And then we also see in chapter 9, verse 25, he doesn't, even amazing enough, he doesn't defer to the religious Leaders, conclusions about Jesus, even though they are the religious authorities. And so when they say, "Well, we hear he is a sinner," he says, "Well, I'm, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see." And that's an incredible step right there for him to say, "Well no, 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 I don't know about what you're saying, religious authorities, but I know this. And then we also see in chapter nine, verse 30 through 33 he directly acknowledges that this man must be from God. Otherwise, he could do nothing. And so we see glimmers of the Spirit of God working upon this man. And so this is a, a real life, it really happened, illustration of what we have been seeing so far in the Gospel of John. And so, Anyone who would know Jesus, they must be what? They must be John chapter 3, born again. So John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so anyone who would know God, they must be, we've already seen this, they must be drawn by the father john 6:44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and then john 6:63 6, and it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is of no help at all and so all that kind of coming into john chapter 9 and so with these passages before us this chapter comes as an illustration of just this Being born from above. The Father's drawing people to himself. The Spirit's giving of life. The spiritually dead and spiritually blind people. So God's pursuit of the blind is exactly what must happen before anyone is saved. Amen. So God, he pursues us, we don't pursue him. And this illustration is seen even further in that here, what does Jesus do? And this is what Jesus does here as well. Jesus seeks after the beggar. Jesus seeks after the beggar. So the man who did not know Jesus. He didn't know where to find Jesus there's no way you know he would have known any of that except perhaps from what people have been saying before this and so what does Jesus do Jesus goes and he tracks down this man he finds him and so as Jesus does ever mindful of his calling ever mindful of his mission and ever mindful of mankind's desperate broken sinful state he asks the man when he finds him do you believe in the son of man and this question really is no surprise right i mean he he seeks after the lost and he prioritizes what is of utmost importance life and death heaven and hell debts and sins and forgiveness through faith And the son of man. And we can even just ask as an aside. If that is his priority. Then what also must be our priority. In every single area of our lives. And so Jesus he does this. Or if you know Jesus already this morning. He did this very personally and very specifically with you also. And so we see the very personal nature of salvation. The personal nature of salvation. So God amazingly, he drew you you to himself. He said to your spiritually dead self Come alive, Andrew. Come alive, Mike. Come alive, Faith. And He did that with you specifically, and He does that with sinners. And so it is that Jesus He asks here, "Do you?" Talking to the blind man specifically, we'll just name him Ezra per se. Do you, Ezra? The no reason to say that's his name, just saying it, throwing it out there. Do you, Ezra, you specifically believe in the Son of Man? And so here we unabashedly see the personal, the intimate nature of salvation and the individual nature of it. Incredible. And we're not just bringing this on over here, over the text, saying, well, that's the way America thinks of things, individual, everything. This is the way that God works. He personally brings people to himself. Amen. And so when Jesus, someone, when Jesus calls someone or he called you, he didn't direct his question that person near you I mean he may have done that to them personally and you just so he didn't direct it at them and then you kind of oh well he's going so I'm just going to kind of follow along you know and you know hopefully i follow that guy or that girl to Jesus as well no he didn't give kind of that general kind of call there in respect to that he called you specifically even knowing you before the foundation of the world. And so he said to you, Do you, you, you believe in the Son of Man. And so this incredible truth, it magnifies God's love for you, his mercy towards you, and it magnifies God Amen. the glory that then arises from our lips and from our voices and from our hands and from our feet rise up and they join the chorus of voices abounding in praise to God Amen. all the voices throughout history all the saints of old rising up and praising the living God. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love leading onward, leading homeward toward your glorious rest above. We didn't just sing that because, like, it's just, let's do the duty and sing a song. You know, this is what we do in worship. We just sing songs, so let's just check it off the box. We sing it because we meant it and we believe it. And our voices are rising up in praise to him because these things are true. Amen. So he came and personally called you and I. Praise the Lord. So following this personal call to him we see also the call to a childlike faith as well how incredible is the man's answer here to Jesus he simply says the man does after Jesus asks him this question and who is he sir that I may believe in him. So he isn't, he isn't sure who the Son of Man may be, but he'll believe him in that one if Jesus simply points him out. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's an incredibly childlike faith. The man is finished with religion, with the sort of religion the Pharisees have offered up, and Jesus, he needs to simply identify the Son of Man and he'll believe. And so see and wonder at this man's childlike faith that he has in Christ's word. You tell me, and I will believe. Now, this would not have been appropriate with anyone else, but with Jesus only. Nor is this kind of a call, like when we think of childlike faith, this isn't a call to a thoughtless, kind of dumb sort of faith, but it is calling for faith in the right object, the right object. And if your faith be in Christ, there is the right object. There is the right source. Now there's a story, true story, told of a man. He was a, you know, skydiving cameraman you know, and he'd go on these skydives and you know of course like it sounds he would film people as he would fall from the sky and you know, he had he planned to jump just like he would normally do with other skydivers and and all this and and so they begin jumping out of the plane and of course he does as well and and he's falling and filming everyone and in the film you know he's seeing one after another and their chutes opening up and you know, the excitement and everything else, and he's going through the air, you know, and the wind, of course, blowing against him, 120 hundred what, 20 miles per hour. He is falling somewhere around that, and he's enjoying all these things. But as everyone else opened their chutes, his camera all of a sudden begins to go crazy. And it goes this way and that, and a big frenzy ensues. When the man, he finds out that he jumped out of the plane without a parachute. When the man, as you can imagine, fell to his death. This is what trust in any other object outside of Christ amounts to. It is free-falling. You may be having a great time totally absent-minded, you have no parachute, everything's going swell. It's great, I love falling, <laughs> you know, this is incredible. All the while, the chute you're trusting in is not only deficient, it isn't even there. It's only faith in Christ that amounts to true safety. He is the one who is there and the only one who can truly save. And when it comes to Jesus, come to Jesus with a child-like faith because he is the right object. And you can surely trust him with everything you are, your heart, your mind, your soul, your life, your emotions. You are his. And so we see here two right responses then, even as we see it here in this man. The first is the right response is eagerly believe. Eagerly believe. So Jesus, he answers, he answers the man. Verse 37, you have seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. So look and see here then, At hearing this, what eagerness this man born blind has in believing in Christ. He readily, he willingly, and he what? Eagerly believes. And I would imagine if someone tried to hold him back from Jesus, no one could do that at this moment. He would have Jesus as his Lord and master and treasure and savior. And no one could stop him even as they cast him out of the synagogue even earlier. So eager belief. And it isn't, this eager belief isn't, you know, to the exclusion of hardy thinking. But faith in the right object, it enlivens, it corrects, and it spurs on thought and thinking all to the glory of God. That's why when you look back in history, you look at some of the greatest thinkers in all of history have been Christians. And philosophy and theology and science and just keep on going and you name it. They've been the hardest thinkers because they're thinking to the glory of God. And so right now, you know, we're being told and threatened by, you know, Secularists and relativists and postmoderns and materialists to bow to worldviews that ignore the God of the universe. Well, who should we believe? Well, I'm already giving you the answer. We are to believe and to eagerly believe our Lord. Amen. Even as this man does here. Unlike the spiritual forces of darkness that we would include in the attempts of all the ones I listed a minute ago, secularist relativists and so on, unlike him, Jesus is not out to crush. He is not out to kill. He is not out to destroy us. But he is about saving us, upholding us, keeping us, protecting us, helping us, molding us, Growing us, humbling us, comforting us, and orienting us in all things to God, toward God, his glory, and infinite joy. Amen. That's what he's aiming for with you. Likewise then, may we with such an eagerness, eager belief, take up our Bibles and read. And think and study and memorize and believe all of it. Even when the world says don't, even when the world puts that pressure on you to forsake the truths of God's word. And you may be here, and you may be like this man, at least prior to trusting in Christ, and you may be here and you don't know Christ. Well, then, what you are to do, I can tell you, is exactly what we've been saying, is you must eagerly believe. And how eager should you believe? Well, as eager as someone who is pining for drink in a desert, as eager, or eager as someone who is starving for food, as eager as a man in a free fall without a parachute desiring and longing for that parachute— That's how eagerly you are to believe. If you don't know Christ this morning, you need the right object. You need Jesus. Amen. So that's the first response. The second right response is to marvel and worship. To marvel and worship. So the man, he believed and he worshiped Jesus. So Jesus what does he do with this man? He doesn't say, oh, wait, wait, stop. <laughs> Not me. He doesn't do that. Jesus, he doesn't defer worship here, does he? No, what does he do? He, he receives worship. And that is to leave us then marveling at the full meaning of this, even as we've already done this morning, that the direct object of worship is Christ. So marvel at this, marvel at him, him who is the son of man, him who is the son of God, him who is prophet, priest, king, the lamb of God, the redeemer, fully God, fully man. We're getting ready to go to Christmas. Emmanuel, Lord of lords, king of kings, your peace, your full and final hope, the savior of lost, desperate, wretched sinners like you and me. And that should cause us to do what? To marvel and to worship. So we see these two responses here. And then next we have here Jesus' words and the Pharisees' question there in verse 39 through 41. And so here we find our second point this morning. I'd rather, Fearful one as well, God's judgment of the blind. God's judgment of the blind. So Jesus's words here, they bring really light. And not, I mean, verse thirty-nine specifically. They bring light over the whole of the passage, the whole of chapter nine. <laughs> the man born blind now truly sees. While the Pharisees, they physically see, yet they are still blind. And so it is that Jesus, he says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. And so here we see the fearful truth the reality of the fact that blindness is judgment. Blindness is judgment. We see that in verse thirty-nine, and this is also why, you know, Jesus's words here. You know, we could think back. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I thought in the Gospel John, didn't we hear that, you know, Jesus? He didn't come into the world t- to condemn the world. You did. You did hear that. Well, these words, they don't contradict his earlier words, so let me read it from John 3, 17. For uh, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that's true. He did not come to condemn the world. But even within that same chapter, even in the next verse, we have the truth that we see in our verse today right next to it. So in chapter 3, verse 18, it says... Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of the Holy God, or the Son of God. And this is the sense here in this passage that blindness, it is a sort of judgment on people right now who aren't trusting Christ. It's a real judgment for those who refuse jesus like the pharisees were doing and so in some ways you know we also are seeing and have been seeing exactly this in america and i mean blindness's judgment and i mean god's judgment in exactly this way there are a good many who are hardening to the gospel who don't know Christ, and there are a good many who are hardening to the gospel who claim to know Christ. Incredible enough. They claim it, they're claiming it, yet they're becoming hardened to it. There has been a, a nominal disconnected sort of Christianity where those where there are those who claim Christ. Yet their trees are bare. And what do I mean? Well, you know, just this week, you know, I was driving along, and as I'm sure many of you have seen as well, the beauty of fall, right? The changing of colors, the leaves, uh, the beauty there, and also the leaves as they are falling, and many trees are just simply left empty altogether. Well, this is what many people that claim to know Christ look like. They're empty of leaves, empty of fruit, empty of any evidence that they are a good tree. And how can you be a good tree? The right object provides the nourishment to make the tree flourish. But the wrong one, it's a dead tree. It's a bad tree. And so we have people that go without fruit, without leaves, well beyond the season of fall. Their tree that goes leafless and fruitless into winter, into spring, into summer also. And all year long, their tree it remains empty. And according to Jesus, they are a no good tree. And so we see the peril of the claim. The peril of the claim. There are two people with two different claims here in verse 39. The first are those who don't claim to see. Those who don't claim to see. Now, outside of Christ, I think we would, most of you here would generally see and see it's true. We're all blind and lost, and separated from God, and that would be true of everyone. So it's generally true, everyone is blind and lost outside of Jesus. And even prior to Jesus, we were blind, we were spiritually dead. And this is why the world looks at the things of God and Christianity and what we believe, and they think that we are absolutely crazy. It's why I used to think that Christians were weirdos. I did. And why, very honestly, I didn't really want to have anything whatsoever to do with Christians. I thought they were just odd. And all this because the world is blind and I was blind. People everywhere are going about in the dark. Now Jesus, he says, those who don't claim to see, like the blind man here, they're actually better off. <laughs> so how in the world is that? Well, there is an honesty about the person. There's an admission that something is wrong. And they may not know what it is, but they know something is off. And they're searching or even simply Waiting for someone to tell them the truth, to tell them to whom they may go that they may see. And they may not even know that's what they're wanting. That's why, you know, Jesus says the harvest is ripe, right? It's ripe for harvest. There are people waiting for you to go and tell them about Jesus. So that's that's kind of the thrust there behind this is that they may or may not know it at all whatsoever, but there's an admission that something is wrong and on the other hand the second set of people are those who do claim to see And these are the Pharisees here so their question in verse 40 it's really the question they ask of Jesus here really says it all I mean, are we also blind so essentially what they're saying here is they're asking it kind of like in this way we aren't the blind ones right You're not saying we're blind, right, Jesus? We're the ones who see. You're talking about somebody else, right? That's the way they're saying or they're phrasing this question. And so the implication is that they see and that Jesus must be talking about someone else. What does that look like today? What does a person like this look like today? Well, in one way, we... It may be rather hard <laughs> to, to know what that person looks like today. But then on the other hand, I think we can see it, and especially if not see it in a way like we go around on a search, like that person's one of those. That's not what I'm talking about. But we need to go and search our own hearts even now. So, What does a person look like that is like this? It is those whose ultimate trust deep down is in themselves. It isn't Christ. It's those who are self-confident and they're self-sufficient. They think they know God because they themselves have got themselves there. <laughs> I did that. you know? And this can really be anyone. It can be anyone. Even an atheist. How in the world is that? Well, it may be an atheist who has a confidence that he or she knows for certain the very things that in and of themselves they cannot know. They say there is no God while there is a God. And they claim it. So heartily they are blind. That may not be all atheists, but it may be including atheists. And they claim to see and yet they don't and maybe the religious as well the self confidence guys in religion whether you claim the title christian, hindu, muslim, catholic, buddhist, baptist, mormon or whatever the self confidence it's ultimately not in the right object jesus christ And it may be the postmodern as well who confidently asserts that they know the way of things interesting enough while their very own logic gives no grounds for them knowing anything whatsoever. So in other words, this could be anyone. It's a matter of the heart. And it's certainly those, well, we have the two people here, there are those who don't know Jesus Christ who are waiting and maybe someone will come and tell them the gospel and those who are just hardened to the gospel and they are blind in the way that the Pharisees are here. It's a deep, hard, still covered heart that refuses to admit that it is blind. And so, Jesus says in verse 31, if you are blind, you would have no guilt Slash sin, that's what that word is. But now you say we see your guilt remains. So what is Jesus saying here? Saying that we're not just fine. None of us are. And to think that we are apart from Christ and Christ alone is judgment and may be judgment forever. All this is a call from Christ to be utterly, utterly humbled and laid low before the living God. Amen. It is a call for us to be honest with ourselves this morning. Certainly that we wouldn't want to come before God, the living God, who is a consuming fire. And then Jesus tells us, I never knew you. But I claimed to see, didn't I? Do you really? Do you really? So we must admit and humble ourselves. We must admit, you must admit you are a sinner. You must admit you're lost. You must admit you are not enough. You must admit you are deficient and cast off all self sufficiency. You must admit that you're separated from God. You must admit that you are not God. And you have no right to stand in his place. You must admit that you're blind and that you, that then, admitting that you are blind, you may see. You may see by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That is where the hope is. Amen. So I'll end this morning then with this, with a simple question. You know, which are you? Which are you? And I encourage you to answer this question this morning. Let this passage do what this passage is intended to do. It is intending to humble all of us this morning. And so let it humble all of us this morning. God pursues you and God pursued you, the blind, and not us let's pray. Father, we come and we first and foremost come rejoicing that you would pursue lost, blind sinners such as I, such as us. Thank you. Father, we pray that these things as we see them you would help us to embrace them and be humbled by the glorious truth that you pursued after us all to your glory and may it be that then we would see the glorious truth of the personal nature of salvation we would see our called childlike faith we would respond with eager belief and respond in marveling and worshiping you, the living God. Father, may you help us to examine ourselves this morning, whether here in person or tuning in online, that we would ask the question of the second set of verses, which are we? Are we those who really, truly see and we know Christ is the right object? Or are we those who claim to see and In the end, we are really only trusting in ourselves. And so help us, Father. I pray for your hand and that you may help us to respond to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.